Jenna. Hello, Bria. Hello, PJ. Hello, Sabrina. Hello, Jenna. Hi. Hello. Hello. Pleasure having you here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Obsessive by Nature. Almost forgot the name of the podcast when I yeah, was saying it, but that's we're still getting it in my in the in the folds of my brain so that I can remember it forever. It's One of I don't know. It's I, I, I'm I'm vibing with it. I'm fine with it, but yeah. I just don't. I don't know how to talk about it because just without getting obsessive. So I see you already am. I'm, I'm meandering into something that doesn't even matter. Yeah. We're here with PJ Patton, uh, my friend and uh, brilliant artist and graphic novelist, and who's uh, the creator of most of my tattoos. <laughs> how you doing, PJ? I'm doing good. It's nice to see you all in person again. Yeah, last I saw mm-hmm. you, I think it was at your birthday party. I didn't get to stick around for as long as I wanted, and I don't know. I never. I feel like I never get to see you as much as I want to. Yeah, it feels like life just happens too much. And I was always like, yeah, no, I was like, yeah, let's hang out, let's hang out, and then life, life, yeah, it it's... keeps moving. It keeps getting in the way. It does. Throws its tentacles all over everything and tears them in weird directions. Obsessive by Nature is made possible by my supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lifeofbria to support the pod and all the other weird stuff we do, and join the Discord. I, I, feel, I remember also, I was feeling horrified that 2022 was the first year in my streak of not getting a tattoo from you. And I'm like, <gasps> I like I missed out on some kind of major juju. Like my magic level went way down. We should take care of that then. Can you retroactively do that though? Can we get a tattoo that like counts for 2022? Yes, if we base it off a of flash design from 2022 then. Oh, okay. Technically it was designed in 2022. Oh, <laughs> oh my god, I just realized we have a pile of books here, but we got the wrong pile of books here. We need Do you turn around PG? Do you got that uh Do you got the Is there a Dragon Quest book on that shelf? Oh, it's gotta be in my my freaking bedroom here. I'm willing to put this pod on pause to grab that thing. Uh, sorry, editor Jenna, but that book is the perfect book for our tattoo artists. Awesome. <clears throat> wow, there's a lot of really cool books here, though. Holy, yeah, I'm pretty impressed with the, the collection. I've got it's uh it's quite something. Yeah. Oh no. I have it, it's here for a fact. It was right here, it's closer to me. This book. I got this book of Dragon Quest RPG, and I feel like Holy. we can play a game with this. And come back. Oh man. I think I saw you talk about this in a post somewhere where 
Is this the book where he redrew? Well, that's my Dragon Ball book, which is also there. We can check that out. But yeah, we got this pile of art books, and I realized the most important one is the one that I've been playing uh, a little game I like to call, What Tattoo Am I Getting? (laughs) Uh, You got to go back. Go Look. Every page of this book, is, as PJ leafs through, uh, he should be seeing that it is basically a book of, like, a flash page of different tattoos you can get. Especially when you're on the monster pages. Yeah. This like, is just, like, a cool-ass, like, manga flash book. Describe, can you describe some of what you're seeing? Because I know podcasting is a, uh, a non-visual medium, so it's probably the worst thing to lead with, but... I mean, these oh, are okay. I've been deciding what tattoos I'm going to be getting based off of these goofy monsters that Toriyama Sensei so lovingly crafted for these video games. I really appreciate the some of the puns in here. Like, there's a candle that looks pretty evil. It's got a little angry face holding a sword, and it's called the Wax Murderer. Oh, I feel like if this I is a Pokemon episode, we all be going, "Oh, it's or, Wax Murderer!" Yeah. <laughs> It's like I mean, his first season, and everyone would slap their heads and make are, funny faces about the pun. There are definitely a few bad pun uh, Pokemon for light fixtures. I know that for a fact. Yeah, what's with that? I, I mean, okay. The cynicist in me says, like, they ran out of ideas after the first game but it feels like they ran out of ideas about halfway through the first game yeah most of the first 150 are just like animal yeah like weird animal pun like ekans is just snake backwards like that's zero effort level jokes like how do you and there's a seal yeah and it's a seal there's dugong that's literally an animal yep was it kingler's a crab right yep that's that's all right it's not too bad pikachu i mean well, that's, Squirtle but, is pretty hilarious. Now, now, of course, I guess in defense of Pokemon, you know, Japanese, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, PJ, but I'm un, I'm told that in, in Japanese culture, uh, jokes and word puns are like really, like people love little puns and stuff. They do. I guess a lot of that has to do with how easily um, the same word or like multiple different words can sound exactly the same, but then it depends on how you spell them, yeah. or the characters you use, or context. So it's like a whole wide world of innuendo and puns you can do. I even know with Tibetan, you actually... I don't remember... In Tibetan, there's so many... One syllable can consist of, what is it, a root letter, the main letter, the head letter, the tail letter, and then two suffix characters... Just for one syllable, and then people will actually have to spell while they're talking, so yeah. you can understand what's going on. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. No, come closer to the mic. Oh, sorry. Gotta like... make sure we got. I know you're looking at the book. I'm looking at the book and looking down. So sorry about that. But no, I was just like, no, we got to get this boy over here. <clears throat> the the, yeah. the quack up is pretty good. It's like a kind of like a dark wing duck yeah. vibe, but with wings and eyes on it that kind of remind me of like an old japanese box kite it looks like it's trying to hypnotize you into fucking it <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i guess we, we found the monster fucker <laughs> i mean i'm not saying i i mean it's not if it's got mind control over you you can't do anything about it you're not beholden to that that's like it's not your fault if you fuck the monster then no one could be mad at you i mean that's pretty good except for the fact that it looks like darkwing duck but <laughs> if you ever want to be hypnotized into having a, a little tryst with darkwing duck I mean, hey, you know, well, I mean, some people go there. Why not? I it mean, looks like the episode where, like, um, 
oh, there's like bush root or whatever. The guy, he's like a plant duck. He's got the same plant hair. He's like green hair. I mean, this is the thing. I have zero familiarity with this uh, this entire world, and I'm oh. quite fascinated by a lot of the art. It's really I've cool. I've never played a Dragon Quest game in my life, uh, but I like Dragon Ball, and I really like Akira Toriyama's early work. So you might have noticed, PJ, that half the drawings in this book are gorgeous, hand-drawn, pen and ink, perhaps paint. And then the other half are kind of generic digital art with lots of soft gradients. Yeah, I'm not a... <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of this whole coloring style of digital art in comics where it looks like everything's got some weird airbrush tone to it because it yeah. looks really muddy. Yeah. I mean... I prefer the old high contrast work when they just did the flats and then did half tones, and then also being a um, an inker more than a digital artist myself, I just ink uh, ink lets you use the irregularities in your line work to like give stuff more character and variation. With digital art, it's just there's not a lot of line weight variation. And there's no inking to show contour. It's like Akira Toriyama, he, I think the character of his, that he created that most sums up his character uh, as a person is uh, Beerus, the god of destruction in Dragon Ball Super, because he's a lazy cat that dislikes to sleep. And Akira Toriyama Sensei, he's a brilliant artist when he wants to be. But at a certain point in his career, he realized he didn't have to be. And so, and then computers came along and that's just easier if you're lazy about it. And I don't think he bothered to learn how to do digital art to the degree that he learned how to do, by necessity, learned how to do with, uh, you know, physical media back in like the 70s, I guess, probably maybe 80s or 60s rather, because he's drawing Dragon Ball in the 80s. Like, I assume mm. he sort of cut his teeth, you know, he had Dr. Slump before that. And so he became a master and then he made a name for himself. And then coasted on that and then just does kind of lazy digital art that, like, I get it. I understand wanting to draw something different later in your career, but it sucks. It's not good. I'm sorry. It, it's uglier than his old stuff. I, I've seen, um, a, you know, it has to be said, a meme about it where basically he, he was apparently not super keen at continuing to do, like, Dragon Ball Z yeah. and kind of this this very, like, relatively plain art style within it. Um, but the producers just pitched up with a truckload of money. Were like, please, and yeah. he was like, yeah, well, all right, fuck it. But you could. Just, it feels like you, from what you're describing, it feels like there's a little bit of a loss of, I don't know, artistic soul to it as a result. Just as kind of like, well, I guess I can phone it in. So why? Yeah, why not? He's Kiritora Fukuyama. He can. He could just put a scratch on a page and people would buy it. And, you know, and good for him, you know, like, we all gotta make money, especially if you're creative. Absolutely. But, yeah, I just, flipping through this book, and the first half is, like, beautiful line work, and you can tell it was colored with Copics or something, like, or Copics, or however the hell you pronounce that. Yeah, the nice, nice markers. Yeah, and it's just got this beautiful, beautiful, like, there's a warmth that's there. But by the time you get to the digital, with this use of the soft airbrush brush on coloring, it just... Kind of makes me sad. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> I thought I was such an asshole for hating his later work so much compared to how much I love the early stuff. But it's like, 
It's such a clear demarcation. Like there's literally, I've got like, there's tabs all over this book. So I've and there it. is. There's one, look for the dancer, look for a tab that says uh, something about the dancer. Got Find it. that pet tab. There's two. Find the first one in the chronological order. So look at that. Look at this gorgeous art. Look at this sexy babe of a dancer. Look at these characters. I, they're so interesting and like, I don't know, I don't want to color it, so to speak, but what is your reaction to seeing this art? Describe it if you can. It looks like, I mean, it's hand-drawn, right? And so, what's the date on this? 90? 1990? The character is Mina and Maya is what I'm looking at. I'm like, they're hand-drawn. You can see how the markers were used. You can see, like, how he, where he made the second pass at the marker to give it some shade and some contrast. And there's just rough line work, and you can tell this was just created by hand. It's like watching an old animator draw, where you see all these beautiful pencil drawings. And then, ooh, but as yeah, I'm looking through there's here... There's a Ugly Dancer. Look for that tab. Uh, ugly Dancer. Okay, that one's orange. Here you go. Same Sadness. character. If you could see my face right now, it would look like a kid who was just told that they're going to have like a really awesome dinner. And got served like horrid vegetables like lima beans or something. I just went from looking at something really beautiful to something that just makes me sad. Like, <laughs> I, Why did it, you do this? It was the remake. It was the re-release of what of Dragon Quest 3 or whatever they were from. And it's like 2006 or something. And it's just like you made the art worse. You re-released it and made it uglier for no reason. Just why even do the art? Money. It's just it's purely a job. Like, okay, fine. Yeah, I'll draw it. Fine. Maybe, you know, he's trying a new style. He hasn't learned it fully, or maybe he doesn't give a shit to learn it fully. And but, yeah, and I kind of wonder that too. Like looking at the later work, which is all digital and pretty quick. Um, I'd be curious to see what he draws, like in his personal sketchbook, perhaps. Yeah. Because you know, if. Well, if I can look at the early work and be like, okay, this is what he had to, available at the time. I look at his new work with all the airbrushing and everything. I can't help wonder if he's just slipped more into like a graphic design trap and is just cranking stuff out. Just like you see with uh, a lot of animation now, too, where everything's just really flat. And some of this, you can definitely see where he put more effort in than other ones. But there's a few things in the later stuff I like. There's a cool turtle. What's interesting to me is like it feels like the the level of detail has gone up. So lots of little details on a lot more pieces, but everything just has a kind of it sort of blurs together as a result in some of them, especially with the way the shading works. It, it just it lacks the impact that his early designs have. Yeah, I feel the shading is always what gets me with when I see digitally colored comics. It's just the set damn soft round brush or whatever the hell they use and it just yeah if you look at like physical airbrushing there's way more depth in it yeah you get little speckles to it as well like it has a grit to it that a digital airbrush is just like a flat gradient like it's math yeah. it doesn't work and even like the half tones that you would use or screen tones still have like a just a warmth and a depth that you don't see with digital art and i can't remember i just saw this on Twitter, and I can't remember which comic artist it was. It's someone from Europe. And he shows side-by-side pages of reprints of his work, like what the original color was. It was very Mobius, just like 
contra- like really just beautiful different values of blues and the color palette was really good. Shading was really subtle, but like, and then they showed what happened when we got to the U.S. Digital art, they took all those blues, made them into weird brown selection, and then did that soft airbrush over thing. And then like, I feel the problem with digital art, <clears throat> especially with shading, is that there's so much of it in there that the designs can't breathe anymore. And it's actually harder to see what's trying to go on with the designs themselves in the artwork. Yeah, it feels harder to see what's being highlighted, what's being shown off. It, like, it, it feels so... I don't know. And, like, you know what? Like, I'm not going to be one to, like, criticize a, a great master. Like, crap. Like, I'm not as good of an artist as, as Kira Toriyama. Me, me not, certainly, either. But, like, seeing what he's capable of doing and then what he's doing in the future, it's just, like, the question I can't help but ask is, why? Like, why don't you just stop? I don't know. Like, I don't understand how you, this is more interesting to you or this is, like, something you like better. Is it purely numbers? You you make more money this way and that's all you care about? It's easier? Is that purely it? Well, I hope he's taking I'm hoping he, he's laughing his way to the bank with it because, I mean, traditionally, like, you know, manga artists, they're kind of slaves to their own work, too, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's a labor of love because... You wouldn't do it otherwise, how much work goes into it. But so Akira Toriyama, I love your work and your later work is digital and it kind of makes me sad to see like what I look at. It's kind of like a step down on art quality, but at the same time, if it makes you have some free time and a little bit more cash, then I get it, you know. It's absolutely. It's tough being an artist, and no disrespect to an artist trying to get paid, I guess. But I can definitely see the quality of work. I'm a sucker for hand drawn. I use an iPad and Procreate like every other, especially any tattooer out there. But so, I often find I scan a physical piece in, clean up the line work, print it back out, light table it, and re-ink it again because I don't like how smooth everything looks when it's in digital form. Yeah, I mean, I've often thought of doing like digital penciling because you have so much control and then bring it into, you print it out and then fit do physical inking. Yeah, um, that hybrid workflow is really handy. I, like, I, the the kind of art that I've been doing has mostly been digital, but I purposefully stray away from the very typical kind of smooth line art, smooth coloring and try and use brushes that have a lot more kind of randomness to them. But it's still not the same as working in physical media. I think with physical media, just I just haven't had the space to do more physical media. But it just, it moves in random ways. It moves in interesting ways. And like, even though it's a random way, you can kind of control it in certain instances to your advantage. You can use all of those kinds of aspects to give it flavor and texture and depth. And it just... When you're just sticking with digital and airbrushing, it loses all of that texture, all of that flavor, all of that, like, I don't know, sounds a little nutty to say, but, like, kind of crunchiness to it that, to me, yeah. brings the heart through. Nutty, crunchy, sorry, I just heard a pun while we are talking about puns. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, my art's nutty and crunchy, I think. 
Yeah, I I really like like I've really enjoyed all of the the physical media that I've seen you you do in particular. I really like your comic. I think it's it's got so much like life and interest to it. Oh, but I, I love seeing your like especially even just paging through some of the stuff that you kind of like tossed aside as we've been working in the studio. It's been kind of a delight to see some of those pieces because they have a lot of just. I don't know, realness to them. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to have a podcast where I can have people come on and praise me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much. You see like the sheer pile of work that I, I'm just sitting on. I've just got so much art that I do and never show anybody because, I don't know, I'm striving for a certain level that I, I'll probably never achieve in my mind. And like I get, I think I have respect for some like Akira Toriyama I guess he, he got really good, but then he also was able to check out and, like, I guess check his ego. I don't know. Like, he doesn't feel the need to keep getting better. Or Guy just produces when he does. Well, I mean, it, it, like, okay, it's just my, my vague sort of vision. But see, I can see, you like, the extra details in there. But I'd be re- I would really be interested to see what his studio looks like, what his his personal art looks like. Like, because that is, I think, where it would be really interesting. Because uh, that stuff is a paycheck. Whereas his personal art is... <laughs> I think knowing him, uh, it might get him in jail. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. Is that where that's heading? Oh. He's, he's, he's had some interesting quotes attributed to him. And he is a, a big misogyny. He's got a big misogyny level. It makes the scouter explode. Uh-huh. Um, and so, and he, he, you, know, you know, okay. One line he was quoted as saying is, Being an old man... I think either will be or is great because you get to bathe your young granddaughters and nobody says anything. Holy shit. God. So Me Too doesn't exist in Japan and and these things don't affect people, I guess. But he's still going and he, what, he's a great artist, but the guy's a creep. I mean, so I said the the character that's most like him is Beerus. Well, the uh, really the mo- more accurately, the character that's most like him is when Beerus and Master Roshi do the fusion dance and become Beerus Roshi, uh, the perverted cat that just wants to sleep and he'll kill you. Uh, I mean, maybe Toriyama says they won't kill you, but he's very powerful. So there, he's a lazy, powerful perv. Oh man, yeah. <clears throat> That's like a whole another thing too, right? Like, I love art, I love music, and then I read interviews with people, and I'm just like, God, like, when I, especially once I start doing art more for a living myself, and purchasing art from people or buying graphic novels from like, you know, independent creators, I really felt like a connection and like giving my money to this person, like, you know, what? like, or it's like going to like a small coffee house versus like a chain, right? Yeah. And you're giving your money to support these people, and. Now, sometimes I like I've read interviews with a couple different bands and I'm just like, oh, man, I don't really want to listen to them anymore because like, no, I just because I don't want to give my money to them, you know, and I don't know, maybe it's naive or something, but I don't know. I feel pretty strongly about that now as um, after, especially after living in isolation for so long and coming back out into the real world. I just, uh, yeah, I feel strong about who or what I'm going to throw my money at. And I know nothing's perfect, but I feel like now I try a little bit more to um, make sure I actually believe in the people whose artwork I'm supporting. And I mean, we're all screwed in the head. Don't get me wrong, but like, yeah, there's limits to it, you know, like pedophilia comments and like racist 
people being like Andy Trance or J.K. Rowling just being a total friggin' flop. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was actually at a breakfast celebration. I'm not going to drop names of the people that were there, but talking to someone who was gay, you know, awesome. And my another friend and I were talking about video games and Death Stranding, I think, we're talking about open world games. And this dude who's gay is like, I'm so excited about whatever the hell that new Harry Potter game oh, is. Oh, the Hogwarts Legacy. And I was just yeah. like, my friend, my friend and I, who actually works for Epic, or not Epic, for EA Games, we just looked at him and we're just like, what? Like, don't you see? It's like that, what is it, the... Uh, the trees believing that the axe is one of them because the axe oh, yeah. has a handle made of wood. Yeah. And, yep. oh, but we're going to donate all the money from our wedding to, like, an LGBTQ group. I was like, the rationale made me just kind of sad. I kind of just, like, my friend and I just kind of looked at this guy. We're just like, uh... Luckily, then it was time to leave, and I didn't yeah. put my foot in my mouth more, but... It's felt pretty passionately about that. Oh. I've seen so many people talk about it like it's some sort of like you know a carbon payment system where they can just like offset yeah. their ally, like throwing their allyship away by just paying towards a a charity. I was like, no, 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 I did this terrible thing, but I also did this good thing, so I'm okay. It's like I. Could have just not done the terrible thing. It's not that hard. And, and you, you didn't actually offset it. You still did the terrible thing. Like, yeah. It's like, cool, you murdered a couple of children and then you found a couple of children at home. That still means you murdered a couple of children. That doesn't make it better. And like, you know, not to compare the two being like yeah, the same, man. but like, you know, what what the whole I play the wizard game says is that it says I'm not a, an ally. You can't rely on me. It means if things come, if things push comes to shove, you'll throw us under the bus for some nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really good way of putting it. Like I don't, you know, J.K. Rowling's got more money than she's ever gonna need to spend. She's literally throwing money at charities to make our lives worse. There's not much we can do about that. She isn't even gonna profit off the wizard game. What it is is it's a message to everyone you care about that, like, when push comes to shove. We can't expect you to hide us under the floorboards if that's what it comes to. Also, Harry Potter's really cringe. I'm sorry. It was always cringe. Thank <laughs> you. I've tried reading it before this all came out and about about her being just a horrible person. And it still sucked. And the only thing I could think of was, was like, eh, Star Wars with magic wands instead of lightsabers. And I mean, yeah, there, there's yeah. my feeling about it. It's generic. I, I grew up with the books that came out as, at, like, I was 10 when the first book came out, you know, it's about 10-year-olds, etc. And I, I grew up with the books. They were impactful to me in ways that it is hard to describe because there there is this sense of, like, this kid being locked in the fucking cupboard under the fucking stairs and he's treated like crap and, you know, there's this idea of of, like doing the right thing and groups that are under pressure and what have you. But it's like, looking back at it now, the writing's really kind of bad. J.K. Rowling has a habit of, like, going back and retconning things that she put in in the last book in, like, weird ways that don't make sense. Like, Hermione gets the time changer thing, and then she can't use it the next year because reasons, and then they conveniently, like, break all of them when they go into the... Um, 
the Ministry for Magic by accident. And, oh, well, no more time changers for anybody. Except maybe when it comes up in a later book. <laughs> like, Is that, like, the literary equivalent of, like, watching your, like, I don't know, The Simpsons does it or any TV series does it where you're, like, season's moving, it's moving all of a sudden. they got, like, that one episode that's just, like clips of a bunch of other episodes slapped together for a filler because like for whatever reason they couldn't crank something out in time so you have to watch like a 30 second snippet of like every episode before that in the season yeah i wonder if that's kind of like the literary equivalent of that just slapping things together i mean just taking like different uh creatures from mythology and like you know European folklore that just so happens to have kind of an anti-Semitic twist to it. Uh, you know, putting a bunch of things in like tropes and, and generic sort of dialogue and, and lazy names for ethnicities and just staple it all together. And be like, there you go. It's a book. It's a book series. It's very whimsical. Well, <laughs> whimsical. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that like led to its huge success is the fact that it is filled to the brim with marketable products just like if you think about it everything the wizards interact with the book starts like the first real interaction harry has with the wizarding world is in a shopping like you know here come to our shopping mall effectively where you can shop for all your wizard goods it's like here's a million copies of products that we can sell to the wands broomsticks hats robes Candy, candy. Of like yeah, the various magic candies, flavors, That's which true. all get mentioned at various points in the books and the TV butter shows. beer. Yeah, like yeah, it's like those old like uh, what eighties cartoon. A lot of eighties cartoons, like in the states, like uh, let's see, were like created by uh, Mattel or Hasbro, like. GoBots was one, which oh, is yeah, kind of like the Transformer knockoff. Well, I mean, Transformers. Transformers was owned by Mattel or Hasbro, wasn't yeah. it? G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. So all these things will have, like... Well, here's the cartoon, and the cartoon doesn't make that much money off of it, right? Because it's a cartoon, and it's super labor-intensive, especially back, you know, in the 80s, where you didn't have as many big factories producing. But here's what... Go- every single character, every single vehicle, a house... Everything is a product that you yeah. can, your kid's going to want to buy. I wanted to buy. I mean, yeah. Aku, Voltron was the Holy Grail when I was a little yeah. kid. Still is. And, um, you know, like, yeah, we're suckers for it. Same. I mean, my, every yeah. movie is this too, right? Star Wars, uh, all the Marvel movies. Like, yeah. it's all like about selling toys and other products associated with it. That's what the real money is in movies or media. Yeah. I mean, uh, the whole tokusatsu genre, which is one of my personal faves in Japan, is just, like, uh, entirely on the toy market. And the way common Riders are now are specifically designed to sell more toys. Because everybody wants the rider belt for the henshin, right? And they have, riders always have, like, modular designs now, so they can have multiple forms they take. And they, like, usually plug something into their belt and, like, pull a switch and do a little, like, dance pose. And then they transform into a a different form. And a lot you can mix and match the forms. And so now that's a whole bunch of little things you can buy for your belt. And uh, a whole bunch of different toys of each common Rider is several different toys now that you can buy. Hmm. And... It used to be, you know, one common Rider, one belt. And, like, maybe they made toys of those. But they... uh, 
Got to make more money off each series. Each series is a significant investment. So how do we get more of that? We need more toys. Riders have to have more toy components to them. It's true. I mean, I'm a sucker for Gundam. Like, I barely watched the cartoon. I watched it a couple times as a kid and tried to go back and watch it. And But you know what? Legos aren't really doing it for me anymore. And so, yeah, I buy Gunpla. I get the Gundam models and kind of, you know, I got into it while I was uh, during the pandemic when they first shut down all the tattoo shops. So I was like, oh, I need something to keep my hands busy. And then, yeah, I got really into uh, Gunpla building. You got some sick Gundams. I've seen them. <laughs> and so they're they're fun. and But like... But yeah, I also know it's without watching the cartoons, I'm not too attached to which Gundam model I get. So when they released a new model, like, I don't really care. And this is not a dig at other people that love Gundam and building the models. But like, I'm shocked sometimes when I see like people's uh, back catalogs, their houses. There's like a stack of like 30 boxes. I'm just like, it's like, I guess it's one of those things where watching the anime or reading the manga is one thing. Buying the models is one thing, and building the models is another thing. You know, it's like collecting books versus reading books. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of falls into that. We just, as a society, like, hoarding these nice little things, maybe hoarding's too strong of a word. We clutch them dearly. Yeah, and you just, like, there's a certain sort of comfort and security, <clears throat> or the illusion of comfort and security, that surrounding yourself with a large amount of nostalgia brings. Well, I mean, you know, we're we're permitted uh, a number of ways to to kind of like ease the pressure and and difficulty of the the world around us that is being created as such, and buying things is one of the the most promoted ways to just I don't know put a little salve on on things, give you a little little hit of of those nice happy chemicals to keep you keep you going. Like, I I think we're like basically program for that like i think you know we're tool creatures we make tools and to get a new tool to solve a problem probably gives us that little hit and it used to be you probably had to make one or somebody would gift you one from your community but now you can go out and buy it and we can just like oh yeah i can just keep getting little tools little things that'll solve this problem in my life this new thing i mean i have straight up met a good few uh, people who have huge specifically tool collections that they never use because it makes them feel good to have the latest and greatest in wall cutting accoutrement. You've seen the pile of art supplies I've got that I have, we have to oh, sift God, through yeah. at the studio. Like you just get things yeah. like, oh, that could be neat. Yeah, I'd like to try that. Cool. And then, you know, it's uh, you don't use it or use it a couple times. It's in a pile, and you just you more than you can even use in a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, you know, with all the adverts that are around us, constantly every day, the adverts that were our children's like our cartoons back in the day when we were young it's no wonder that our brains are just wired to like well i could just buy another thing spend more consume <laughs> you don't need those bloody glasses from uh, we live they live they live we yeah. sleep and just like <laughs> consume writ large yeah yeah i mean my weakness too is art supplies <clears throat> still kind of is i was always in this fear that i was going to run out of uh what is that zero zero five sakura micron oh the the, the finest pen on earth they're like precious and i illustrated a whole book with them and you know like now if i look at my uh my pen rack once i actually sorted all my stuff yeah i probably got about like 20 005s and probably total like 35 40 micron pens you can refill those you know right 
no. Now I know. <laughs> now, the thing with the point oh oh five, you get the problem where they like split in half or get bent over. Yeah. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. But if you can keep that intact, you can just pry the back off with a pair of pliers and inject your ink of choice into the foam <gasps> that exists within it. And you can just refill those suckers, folks. You don't need to keep buying pens. Big Pen doesn't want you to know, <laughs> but you can just refill all your pens and make custom pens. Don't oh. let them trick you, folks. Do you... Sabrina's had a lot of custom pens she's been showing on... We talked about it in a previous whole, episode. Yeah, okay, it's been talking about a previous whole, episode, but like... This whole podcast is just going to turn into <laughs> making your own pens. It's like it's like a commercial, <laughs> like I'm selling you something, but I'm not. I'm like, no, don't. Do not buy anything. Only pick up garbage. Make all your own stuff from things you find outside. I you know, I... Yeah, I think it's a good way right now. Like, I don't know, we're talking about art supplies, like... But recently I got all of my um, Obachan's brushes. So Obachan is my uh, Japanese term for grandmother. And she was an artist. Now she's 97 and going blind. So I got all of her beautiful bamboo handle brushes. And I got these beautiful ink stones. And it's like the ink stones, that's like, I treasure them. You know, I'll actually take really good care of them because it took somebody collecting soot from lamps for a house freaking long in order to make that one ink stick and that hand carved ink stone and but it's like once again though but it's also kind of like i don't know it's kind of beautiful though like along with sabrina you're saying is this you're making art supplies out of something else versus this plastic tube that i'm addicted to that has this really fine little nib that i love that i can't find anywhere else you could probably Get a new tip. You save those ones with the busted tips. We'll resurrect them. We got the technology. I could figure it out. Yeah, that's true. You could probably put a really tiny little like wire because that's how I've got those. Um, (laughs) they're uh, repeatographs. Koinor repeatographs. I used to get their like point forty or something. It was. It's turquoise. That is actually finer than the .005, but even more delicate. I went through, like, I don't know, half a dozen of those things before I gave up on them. They're like 45 bucks a pop at that time. Oh, man. Maybe more today. And, like, they uh, were so fine, and it was a super teeny tiny wire that, like, mm. fed out through, and the ink ran down it, and that's how it worked. And it was so easy to bend that wire and bust it. And They're very unforgiving. Yeah. But we could... <laughs> Maybe do something like that with those. I don't know. If not that, then a bit of foam. That's oh. true. That's Or a, a hairs. A couple hairs, like a brush. You could turn it into a super micro brush. <gasps> I, I learned how to make brush pens. I have made a brush pen purely out of a paintbrush. A, a crappy old dollar store paintbrush I turned into a paint pen. I can, I can do some things to improve it, but... This will have to turn into a video podcast of me, <laughs> me hanging out at Sabrina's art studio and like bringing all my pens over and trying to like retrofit them to into different things because oh let's do let's do a video I, of that I, we I, do I videos love brush pens too absolutely they're, they're like my weakness as well for art supplies <laughs> I want to make some really nice primo uh, refillable brush pens and refillable uh, like G nib you know you know G nibs yeah uh, like fountain pens with G nibs. I've already got some working prototypes. I'm going to improve them. I've got some ball bearings that I can use to improve the design. But yeah, we're going to make it happen. We're going to make the ultimate pen. You'll never have to buy another pen again. Oh man, because I bought like a really nice like stainless steel fountain pen. 
was like a celebration gift to myself when I got like one of my first illustration gigs um, after I came to Canada and I stopped working and I was like, oh man, I have a bunch of genibs around because I love them. And yeah, that's one, that's one of the ones I want to try to get the genib to work on. Oh, we could do it. Because it's portable and I just, I see. (laughs) Um, I've already done it. I've got one here that I made with a cheap uh, fountain pen. I don't know. I have to rummage through the arm farm to find it, but it won't. Maybe I won't. I mean, yeah. Just some solid audio. <laughs> yeah, sorry. This is the one. Is it? No, that's a regular one. Where is that one? Ah, here it is next to it. Yeah. So this one is the regular, and then the other one there is the G pen. So it's just like, these are dollar store fountain pens I bought. And I just took one and I pried the nib out of it, and then I had to trim down a G pen actually to make it a little smaller to fit. That was hard, trimming steel. And uh, <laughs> shoved it in there. And it's not perfect. I feel like I could maybe, like, cause it's, it's a little bit bigger of a nib. So the ink is not as happy flowing into it. It does, but it's a mm. little less reliable than the original nib. So I might try to, like, shove it in deeper or something to maybe get the ink a little more into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wow. yeah. That's, so we, we just started nerding out on the uh, pen technology here, people and listeners. And... It wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. But I mean, it's for anyone who's by nature, that's. <laughs> <laughs> And if you're not familiar with the G-Pen, the G-Pen is this Je- the Japanese manga comic kind of standard inking utensil. You know, a lot of people use brushes and other pens as well, but G-Pen is like the pen. It's synonymous with pen at this point, I'd say. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Definitely. It's nice. They got that sharp line to them. It's so interesting the difference between American and Japanese pens. I don't know if you've like compared them as much, but like American ones have they're more fluid, they're softer. Japanese ones are sharper. You can get a sharper corner with them and stuff. Yeah. Which is nice in can. some instances. Yeah, it's actually probably really helpful for like writing hiragana and kanji and stuff. Yeah. They have yeah. kind of like that really like that precision level where like the one wrong turn or one wrong line can change the meaning of the word or character. It's always, like, it's something that I keep seeing time and time again is, like, as a cultural difference between, like, um, Europe and, or, like, America in particular and and Japan of, like, America has this idea of just, like, mass-producing things. And it's very efficient in one sense, I guess, because we just get lots of these things. And I'm just, like, I keep seeing, like, just all these incredible attention to just becoming a master at making one thing or like making a set of things where there's a lot more time and focus and attention to to making it the best version of it it can be whereas america is just like well we threw more stuff at the problem um and like even if you go back to like europe and and so forth like europe had a lot of like to the the middle ages um it's always i know this is a bit of a weird tangent but i, I always get sort of obsessed between like some people that are like oh you know the katana is the the best sword it can cut through steel and all these kinds of things it's like they are incredible works of art for what they are which is like having very little steel and then europe which had tons of steel was like we put people in stupid suits while they waddle around and wail on each other <laughs> <laughs> like this is efficiency and it's like well it works i sort of hate it but it works 
Yeah. And I also sort of love it, if I'm honest. But well, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So yeah. does you steal? Make you steal, steal everyone else's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it's a title of the podcast is Obsessive by Nature. Name if you know what is it is it that's the title of the podcast, right? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um <laughs> We we labored over the first few episodes we didn't actually have a title. Oh yeah. Was your you know, we're waffling on different things. And you look at the Japanese culture stuff too, like, there, it is very obsessive by nature, right? Like, you're getting ink stones that are made, ink sticks that are made by the same family for like 10 generations. Yeah. Or you have a, a scissor making master who's selling bonsai scissors for like freaking 20 grand. Wow. And the bonsai master that buys those scissors knows the difference because he is also obsessed. Yeah. Of what they're doing. And I guess, yeah, you don't... There's there's this beauty of uh, the crafts, crafts work or the trades, you know, whether you're a carpenter, if you look at the wood joinery, the art, the mangakas there are just like ridiculous in their devotion to the craft. And I, yeah, I just, yeah, it definitely is obsessive by nature. It, you know, it's one reason why I buy a lot of Japanese products or tend to be interested in you know, a good amount of Japanese media is it feels like one of the few countries or cultures in the world that like gives a shit like they, they put effort into things. And I'm saying people don't put effort here, but like things that they make are good. If you buy something that's from Japan, it's going to be good quality. It's going to last. It's not made to break down, you know, in like a, like a deck, you know, half a decade or less like it's it's like it's meant to be the best. They still care about what they make. It it does feel sometimes a little bit like that's changing, and this is very much from like you know I grew up in a country that didn't have a lot of a connection with um, Japan or you know the greater Asian area. Unlike mm-hmm. you know not to sound extremely white in saying that, but like. Um, so I didn't get to interact with a lot of it, but it's interesting to see how much America is still, the, the pressures of capitalism seem to be hitting Japan in some really unique and interesting ways around that. Like, because there is this kind of like weird war between profitability and making things the best they can be. And it's like, yeah, I, I often find a lot of Japanese products are really, really good because they're just making them to be a good quality. Because there's just a sort of like, I don't know, respect for it being good quality there. Whereas like American products are just like, we are chasing that bottom line. We want it as cheap as possible to make. I don't care what you have to do. A little bit of slavery is fine. Just like make it cheap. Like we don't need six million of the the worst things that break after two strokes. Like just you got to pay the CEOs somehow. And I'm not (sighs) saying they don't pay the CEOs a whole bunch and too much in Japan, but they still have, they have a cultural pressure and their niche, I suppose, in products is to make high quality products. Like there's some drive there that in America, there's like, no, we're going to, we just got to make more money, whatever it is, make more money. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Especially. Yeah. You see that, how it changes too with industries once to become more popular, you know, like, I'll try to think of an example. I mean, being from the States where, you know, anything that becomes like, that's like counterculture at first, where it's like surfing, skateboarding, two things that I love dearly, snowboarding. And then once you get to a certain level of popularity and that's when investors come in, 
Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of companies start losing control of their vision, you know, because people do need to make money to live. And I understand and respect that. But then at some point, you know, it's not really the it's not the vision of the people who created it anymore. It's just become like an icon or something that's it's almost like public domain in a way, you know, it becomes public domain, like the imagery and everything like surfing or skateboarding or any of those board sports are used in advertising everything by people who have never done those things even. Yeah. You know, it's when something becomes popular and a counterculture becomes popular enough, it gets commodified. Tattooing is really a good example of that right now. You know, mm-hmm. um, the style of American traditional artwork, Japanese tattoo artwork, just getting slapped on everything. And that's not a criticism against the tattooers, but it's just one of those things, once again, when a counterculture, like you have like Sailor Jerry rum. And I don't even know if Sailor Jerry's family or estate gets anything from that. Oh. I hope they do. But, you know, I heard that there were some battles over that as well. Really? And, yeah, so I don't know. There's just, yeah, where capitalism gets into the counterculture thing, it's like they will commodify anything to make money. Well, I've always been that kind of, you know, like, what, contrarian, like, oh, uh, hipstery, like, I don't like things if they're popular kind of thing. And I think it's tempting to make fun of people, like, you know, hipsters that are like, that was cool before it got mainstream. But, like... Uh, the truth is when something becomes mainstream, it does change it. It's not just, oh, everybody likes it now and I don't like it. Like some people totally have that identity of like defining yourself by not liking what's popular. Like I'm guilty of that to a degree for sure. In some instances, I can admit that. But like a lot of it is no, when something becomes popular, like they change it to be, make it more marketable. They water it down. They have to maybe cut out elements that are too edgy or whatever and put in like softer edges to things. And, you know, it becomes commodified and sold and there's like hidden behind more paywalls. There's sold for a higher premium. And it's just, it loses a lot of the character. It's no longer, like a lot of the things that I like, I wouldn't like them if they were more popular because I know it would change them. It it becomes I think this this um, it's a it's a paint by numbers with a spreadsheet. It becomes like the people who make the decisions about the thing stop having artistic integrity in it because it gets handed over to the people at the top making the big decisions are the ones who look at spreadsheets all day and they go well like you know. Um, it's really popular for for to be a male protagonist, so we're sticking a male protagonist in there. It's like, and the original artists just don't really get as much of a say in it anymore because, like, whatever they created, whatever they're working on, whatever this thing is that, like, you know, even the the original surfers don't get as much of a like say. Oh, I say original surfers, but like, yeah, as like that, back in Hawaii, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like right. Hawaiian I mean, kings and queens or whatever. Like, I mean. You know, that that is actually an element of it. Like, you know, how yeah. much of that is run by, like, dudes who, I mean... Colonialism, like, capitalism, kind of... Yeah, well, they just come in and take that. things, right? They, yeah. they, they take land. My uncle was a and... huge surfer. He was really into surfing. And he also worked for massive companies, like, employing people from, like, outsourcing to halfway around the world for these massive companies. And he drove a BMW. And, like... I could see he had this passion for surfing, but there was also this sort of light behind his eyes about all the ways that he could maybe monetize it. It was just like, gross. Yeah, it is pretty gross. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, you see that a lot in different movements and art scenes and things. 
one oh god uh my brain just blanked out on it but we'll come back uh, some people though they've got that they got like that i don't know what the profit mindset they like they just think of how can i take advantage of this how can i make money from it and like I get being industrious or trying to like, you know, make things happen, seeing opportunities, seeing like a pen you can make out of garbage you find. I get that. But like, I guess when it crosses this line into like taking something from somebody else or taking advantage of somebody else, like that's where it's not okay anymore. Like when your your business idea is harming the thing that you're making it out of or making or harming the people associated with the thing you're making it out of. I think for a lot of people, they have the attitude, a lot of the people doing that, they have this attitude that, like, the profit is the reason to do it. It's like, you know, they look at this thing and they're like, I love this thing, and it would be so much better if it was making more money. And it's like, well, making more money doesn't necessarily make it better. It might make it more mainstream, but it doesn't make it, like, better. The actual things being made are often far worse because it reaches a wider audience. It's like... You know, I know I keep harping on about, like, the Marvel-Disney bullshit, but, like, Disney keeps making the same paint-by-numbers crap because, like, well, it's easier to hit all of their target audiences. It's like, well, if we put in this one scene that, like, pisses off, that there's like, oh, two people kiss for a split second, we can edit it out for China so that, and, and Russia, and they'll be happy with it, and then we can also market it to the rest of the world that is more pro-LGBT, and if we're even luckier, we can use that aggro, like, group that gets pissed off when queer people kiss on TV to help market it. Like, how can we hit all the demographics all at once, make yeah. them all mad? That just happened in The Last of Us. The, yeah. The, uh, I, oh, God, spoilers. I don't, I don't oh, want well, to do There's a gay episode, though, right? There, there is a gay episode, and it was edited in other regions. To make it a best friends episode. Oh my god! Let's just say that. Let's like I think I can say that without spoiling things. But I mean, in the games, she's canonically. Uh, yes, in the she's game, canonically it's, a lesbian. Like in the game, there's no doubt, especially when they released the DLC Left Behind. Yeah, it's like this is as clear as day. This is what's happening. But yeah, you get into commercialization of things, and yeah, it just happens. But I do have a hipster joke. As we're oh, talking about the sure. subject about things mm-hmm. being obscure, how many hipsters does it take to screw in a light bulb? How uh, many, PJ? It's a pretty obscure number. You've probably never heard of it before. <laughs> <laughs> Was it some like non-real number? <laughs> some weirdo decimal point? Like, well, we're we're recording this one day after Pi Day. It's like Pi. Oh, <laughs> Even better. The you know, some. I mean, oh yeah, but do you know all the digits? Are you yeah. a real Pi fan? Yeah, exactly. Like, how how much can you memorize and recite? I mean, there are people like that, though. They're like, their whole thing is like memorizing and reciting digits of pie. And the more you can do, the smarter you are in their book. You know, like it's a whole competition you can do. Uh, I mean, that, that that sort of is a weird tangent. Reminds me of like people memorizing chess moves. And it's like chess has become one of the current, I think the current grandmaster or something is like famous for actively trying to push people out of the most common moves as fast as possible so he'll do things completely randomly in order to push his opponent to stop using the like textbook the textbook Mm. plays because then he's actually playing against their 
thinking, their ability to like, work. And a lot of players just fall apart because they can't hack it because they just spent so long memorizing all of the moves. They're when not, this happens, you do this. They're not actually good at chess. They just know they have like a cheat book in their head of like moves people do. It's like a computer, right? Yeah. Computers yeah. only get us the information you put into it. And to go off on another tangent related to that, my friend and I used to always argue, or not argue, but agree on like, it's one thing to be well-read. It's another thing to actually have intelligence. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to be memorize a lot of facts, but what can you actually do with any of that stuff? You know, I mean, if you can win Jeopardy, awesome. Like my dad was one of those people who won a bunch of game shows because he knew a bunch of facts right on. That's awesome. But he's also a pretty smart guy. <laughs> you know, he could apply it. You know, yeah. I remember being in really anywhere in, in Asia that I've been, but like primarily when I was in India and Nepal, uh, Nepal I was in for a, a more significant amount of time, but I noticed that the, all the signs there, of course, are hand-painted, and there's no copyright, so they're often like characters like Bugs Bunny or, you know, any any copyright-written character. They just use it. They don't care. Yeah. But they, they're they hand-painted, but also clearly, like, traced. Mm-hmm. Like, they just trace things. And, you, I, you know, volunteered and, like, taught in schools and stuff. And the kids there, they all didn't know how to draw. They just traced. They didn't. And, like, part of it is, like, it's really hard to teach art. Part of it is, like, their whole education system was completely destroyed mm-hmm. by a civil war. But, um... Another part of it, though, is like the only and this is like, you know, I encountered this in, in like Thailand where I also taught school. Uh, everyone learned basically by rote memorization. So all you were concerned with was regurgitating facts. So when they had art class, I think even like even in places that weren't destroyed by a civil war, I witnessed this where like kids just kind of traced and like that was like the most accurate way they could reproduce an image. And that's what mattered. It wasn't like nobody actually taught them how to maybe express themselves or, or like how to draw by looking at something even, which is, you know, kind of a copying rote memorization. If you think of it, like the yeah. way they taught education made it. So this skill kind of, and I'm not going to say there's no good artists in Thailand, but this is the way kids seem to be taught in this, you know, school, at least in other schools I saw. Um, like it just like it fundamentally doesn't teach them the skill because all you're concerned with is regurgitating facts and, you know, it makes me think about, like, perhaps other shortcomings that might exist in our approaches to education that mean certain skills are just fundamentally not passed on. Oh, if I... <laughs> oh, man. I wish my wife was here for this one about education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the current education system is terrible. Like, pick a, pick a country anywhere in the world and I could tell you probably with 20 minutes of Googling why it's awful. Um, we're locking kids in rooms, trying to get them to focus on things they're not interested in, while we, like, spoon-feed them stuff to make them ready for a world where they're supposed to work in the digital equivalent of, like, uh, assembly line. Like, that's what, that's what schooling mostly is. That's why we're all taught the same stuff in the same ways, the same boring crap constantly. Because it doesn't actually engage your brain that much. If you're just regurgitating details to write them on a test, you're not actually being tested on your knowledge. You're being tested on your memory, which what's you like computers have memory. Like like the comparison earlier, like if you just spitting out whatever you know every time, that's it. Oh, but yeah, that's true, though. With like <coughs> I have two kids in school. One's 10 and one's 13. And they're both really smart. Um. But they struggle. They're both yeah. on the spectrum. 
and you know and like ADD or whatever and so they have a hard time one my youngest has a hard time sitting still but he's really smart and he brings stuff home if he can work on it in his own way he will get it done and he will do a really good job in class he's one of those kids that has to have a fidget toy because mm-hmm. otherwise he can't focus and it's you know it's hard and my older one who's 13 and seventh grade now he um he's struggling because they don't have an ea in the class anymore they got the ea got moved to a different classroom and so these kids that think differently as people in general who think differently sometimes often fall through the cracks and it's because they're not thinking the mainstream way it's not viewed as valuable when actually all the valuable changes come from thinking outside the box and just to put Japan in perspective, I know I love Japan, being half Japanese, everything. But you're not supposed to stick out there. And there's a saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down first. And I feel like that applies to the Western education model as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think oh, go on. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's just, it, especially in, the, in Western countries, it often feels like the same approach of spitting out as much of the same crap for as minimal cost as possible. You know, uh, it's like, it baffles me to see how little money is thrown at education in all these countries. Like, teacher, teaching is one of the worst paid jobs, when as far as I'm concerned, teachers should be being paid more than any business major ever. Well, they, I, you know, it's, I don't like talking in too conspiratorial of terms, but like, it's intentional, right? Like, they don't want you to even really want to learn. They don't want you to have any more than the amount of knowledge needed to do, like, most jobs. Like, they, there's no incentive for the state to make you, like, a brilliant mind that can think critically and examine the world and, like, you know, try to solve problems. <laughs> but that, that's, that's one of those uh, contradictions of, like, capitalist theory that bothers me the most it's like it's way more efficient if you make a few really standout individuals that are really good at in whatever the hell their super special interest is it's super efficient to do that and our system is like nah we're just gonna kneecap them like just we're gonna make their childhood as difficult and as complicated as possible hammer them into this box shape so that we get more boxes to build the like digital pyramids well, it's like, it's a fundamental not valuing of like, yeah, like certain subsets of humanity, whether it's like a xenophobic or racist lens of like, we don't value different cultures and different peoples or, or you're uh, not valuing women because they're not, you know, men and you only value male characteristics or you're not val- valuing like queer people, LGBT people, gender variant people, because like you're thinking, no, we just need breeders and workers slash fighters. And we don't care about anyone else fulfilling any other role. That doesn't matter. We've broken humanity down into basic units that we can add up in number boxes and do our accounting and outdo our enemies. All we need are people to do jobs and kill people and people to make more people that's it. And then everyone else, you better get in line or you're getting... We don't need you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. Yeah. And we we're talking about this graphic novel before we started recording called um, Addicted to War. And yeah, I wish yeah. I could find it. It's really slim paperback. It's really well done. 
And there is one thing talking about education where at one point in the American school system was actually focused on creating kids that were like thinking and stuff. And I think it was around World War post-World War II that they wanted to, they realized that they actually needed to create obedience. And so mm. the American school system, and I would argue the Canadian school system as well. Oh, we're just a little America. It's like just creating, it's more about creating obedient kids who will say yes to things. And because you do have to have like people that will serve in the military. And I'm not knocking on veterans, like oh. veterans I have tons of respect for. It's the people above them that create all the problems. You know, um, coming from a family of vets, but there's like, definitely something noble and being willing to make a sacrifice for something you care about. Yeah, but yeah. the school system. Yeah, it's just. I wish I could pull my kids out, but being in a shared custody situation, like stepkids are still in public school, and it makes myself and my wife both sad because I'd rather homeschool them. Yeah, teach them what they need to know you know, to function, you know, in the world, a certain level of math and the basics. And then my youngest wants to build robots. He's already working on stuff like that. My oldest one is teaching himself video editing. Cool. And yeah. those are like both really good skill sets, you know, and I just wish they could focus on what they actually like. Yeah. You know? I mean, I've always you know, had this sort of saying in my head. I read it in some like how to draw manga book or something. <laughs> I used to buy those when I was a budding mm. young artist and I still uh, do. <laughs> yeah, they, they have some good stuff in some of them. There's some creepy stuff in some of them too. But yeah, uh, I still have a few of mine. And there's one that stood out though. It was like, if you don't have fun drawing it, the reader's not going to have fun reading it. And I think if somebody doesn't enjoy what they're doing, they're, they're not like we must have talked about this in the pilot episode. If you don't like what you're doing, you're not actually going to do a very good job of it. Yeah. So like you, they should actually be incentivizing people to be able to do what they do and follow their passion because you probably will actually pay off. And if again, like we've got so many people, like if if when there's like people talking like oh like why would anybody shovel shit then or whatever? Right? Why would anybody do hard work? It's like yeah, but we actually have a lot of people. If you did like a little bit of hard work, if everybody just did a little bit of hard work, like you know, if you have a house, you have to do yard work and stuff, right? You have to. Yeah take care of it. That's chores you got to do if you want to live there. What if you live in a nice place? There's lots of nice stuff and it just takes everybody doing a little bit of chores to keep it going and then you go do your thing that you do. I mean, like, there are systems that work like this already. This is what, you know, communes and I I gather a lot of co-ops do things like that where they have, like, these are the the things that need to get done here and you sign up to do some of them there are also like i'm reminded of that story of that kid that was super into mixing paint colors he was like really into paint and how it all worked and he was doing all these tiktoks about like mixing paint became really popular and they fired him and i was like why would you fire the oh guy? god i remember that he worked at like a major paint store and they fired him yeah, it's like, uh, it's his passion. He's so passionate about So it was about because this. he was he making just, videos? Yeah. About paint you, at a paint store. You idiots. Which is like free you, marketing for the paint yeah. company. Do they was, not understand how social media works? It was free marketing they couldn't control. And they didn't like that. So that's why they got rid of it. I, so I remember this. Only well, because they tried did. to have their own. They oh, okay, we'll do our own then. And then it's like, no one gives a crap. Like It was, it did end, I think, quite nicely because some like mom and pop store uh paint shop like 
and hired joining him. him. Yeah. And he kept making videos. But like Yeah. Once yeah. you have a big platform like that, you can like you almost have practically have a golden parachute. You yeah. Can, you'll some will say, Hey, I'll take you up. Like you oh, know. I mean the whole concept around influencing for um, it, influencing and all of that is in its own way like this oh, whole horrifying that that's the social safety net being a social media niche celebrity yeah it's it's like it's like playing the lottery 2.0 it's like yeah you could buy scratch tickets or you could just make random videos and hope you struck it lucky I guess that enough people will hear your screams into the void to care about your plight <laughs> Yeah. yeah, of course, that works better if you're a cishet white dude, because, you know, that's the most popular sort of person that people who have the money to throw at things are going to associate with. Oh, God. All YouTubers are, I feel like, a lot of time is just hearing, like, angry white guys say this. Oh, my God. You've never seen this before, people. This is insane. <laughs> and then they just scream louder and louder. And that's what I hear when my kids are watching YouTube. They yeah. did discover Stephen Heat. I'm just going to plug the guy because he's Asian. And it's hilarious to watch him because it just reminds... It's all about him imitating his dad. <laughs> and how rough it is to have Asian parents. And it's very traumatic to watch it. But at the same time, it's like... I finally feel seen. But we've looked for non-white creators on these platforms for our kids to watch. My kids are... My stepsons are uh, Cree as well, you know. So, like, we're trying to find indigenous creators and different creators for them. It's fucking hard. Yep. Yeah. It is hard. And it sucks. Well, just think of like how many of these uh, different videos, either YouTube, TikTok, any platform, the person's always in a giant freaking house. They always have some giant ass kitchen that they're doing some, you know, chocolate pouring thing or whatever. And it's like, yeah, of course you get to make videos. You will probably already have like enough. You don't need the income from whatever this is. Like you started out in a good place and now you get to play, right? Like, it's it's a lot of freaking work to make videos. You have to have like cameras, mics, a, a room you can shoot in. Yeah. Uh, most of these uh, channels they make it seem like it's one person, like just you know in front of but the it's camera. A team. It's a whole team. I've, we've probably talked about this on this the pod before, but like yeah, like so many of these channels are basically owned by big media companies, even like, and it's like selling oh, yeah. you the idea that it's just one person behind it, but it isn't. I mean, like, to be fair to some of these video creators, like, they did start out with almost nothing, and, like, this is a, yeah. this was a way for them to make it big. But also, like, A, it shouldn't be a lottery like that. B, it's a really disturbing, like, self-kind of um, perpetuating system of employing these, like, white dudes. And then why are they hiding how many people it takes to make their videos in a lot of cases? And... The, the the sort of like I don't know ADHD bait I see in so many like, oh god <laughs> especially yeah. stuff targeted at kids where it's like oh you know buy Roblox and then it's the Roblox scream and then it's like taking a million memes and smashing them together as fast as possible and like my brain is getting overloaded watching this and like you know not to be an old fuddy duddy but like I don't think that's good for anyone's brain like yeah, our parents thought the internet was going to be terrible for our brains. And you know what? They were probably sort of right, even if they were wrong about how. But, like, I don't know how this is going to screw kids up, but I feel pretty sure it's going to do so. That's the thing about new things, is you never really know what they're going to do, because it's new. Although, everything that's new is also old. Like, it's often the same business as usual, but done scarier. But, like, 
yeah, like we don't actually know the effects of things. Who knows how it's going to pay off? I think often this is like some like conversation my dad and I had when I was a. Uh, I'm an artist now, amongst other things, but I was well, actually an applied physics major with an emphasis on improving medical tech. Oh my god! Hilarious! I forgot right? that. And my dad and I were talking one day, and my dad he has his. Uh, his bachelor's in some like obscure mathematics field and his master's was in quantitative economics theory. And he would talk about like quantum physics just for shits and giggles, you know, and him and I were talking about my major and he's like, what are you working on? And I was, my main focus was on force frequency vibrations and resonation as a alternative way to destroy like unwanted cells. Anyhow, this was like in the late nineties, I guess I was mm-hmm. studying my dad looks at me and says, what are the negative application potentials for this? And I was like, well, you could create, like, you could cook people from the inside for torture. I started, like, listing them off out loud. And he was like, do you still want to do that? And I was like, no. He was like, just drop out and go to sc- focus on art and music instead. Why are you doing yeah. this? And I was like, here's my white-collar dad who was huge in the aerospace industry telling me, like, you need to think about what you're creating because what are the, yeah, there's free will. Don't get me wrong. But I think too often people, when we create things, it's not coming from a good place. It's just from greed. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people will get hurt with the justification of free will. And or, I think if you're or a creator, even science, yeah. like the yeah. you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I, we have to just make this discovery. We just got to do this research to know. And like, you you did, had a noble goal, right? You want to do medical imaging or whatever, right? But like, it's you could take that same technology and weaponize it. Which like, I'm sure your dad, you know, you said he worked in aerospace, right? Like, yeah, same thing. I've I've known multiple aerospace engineers that quit because they didn't want to make bombs anymore. They didn't want to make fighter yeah. jets or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, you know, technology's great. You know, I don't want to be like back when I was a boy. You know, but yeah. like. <laughs> To an extent, I am, you know, and it comes back to you too, like using pen and ink, using digital. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, um, because what are you going to do when my biggest fear for like kids in general is that, you know, what do the kids do when there's like no power or the internet goes out? And like, I use the internet. I love playing freaking, I don't know, The Last of Us, Elden Ring. You know, I play video games all the time. Like, I'm not here, like, saying, like, oh, I, some purist, because I'm not. But I can entertain myself when I lose all that stuff. And sometimes I just, I worry about kids and people being able to entertain themselves when technology takes a shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, it's been an interesting, funnily enough, it's an interesting discussion I've had with a couple of people, like, back in South Africa recently. Because they've been having these periodic rolling blackouts. It's like, how do they keep themselves entertained for sometimes between two and four hours at a time with no power? Sometimes even longer. And like, they've, they're missing a third of every day is just without power. Yeah. Which is insane. And I was like, well, how do you deal with that? How do you, like, when you've built your life around interacting with the internet and interacting with all these physical, like, all these electronic items and suddenly none of them work. And it's like, like friend she's she's had to like basically disconnect her phone so that she can't be 
cold while she's um, while she, the power is out because if she doesn't, it'll use up her data, which will cost her like hundreds of dollars. So she's stuck oh in this God. weird limbo place where she can't be contacted via most means whenever she doesn't have power in exchange for like watching a movie. Wow. Like, you know, like I would say read some books maybe. That way you could be contactable. But it's like, you know, if you if you haven't like grown attached to books and now you're in your, you're like, mid 30s and you're trying to figure out like it's a hard thing to get into if you weren't super into it then yeah yeah like, i think it's important just to have like sort of multitudes that you have in your life like i learned in my teens the importance of having like both a physical and a more like she'll we'll say intellectual practice like it's good to do something with your body it's really important to exercise and move in some way to have a familiarity with your body but you can't make your whole life out of that because mm. you you sometimes you're sick Sometimes you're injured, you will grow old one day and die. You can't, you know, your body's not always going to be strong. And so what do you do if that's your whole thing, right? You have to have something you do that is more like your mind, your skills, uh, something soft. Art is what I chose, right? Among, Mm -hmm. I guess, a million other things. But like, you got got to be able to do something when you can't do the other thing, right? Oh, you don't have electricity? Or do you have something you can do during that? Like, Like something else you can do instead? Like, did you break your leg and now you can't ride a skateboard or go surfing? What are you going to do instead? You yeah, know? you have to have yeah. something. And it's like, it's important to plan for these kinds of things, like alternatives in life. And uh, like in you know, circumstances like having no electricity or maybe the pen you really like, you can't get it anymore. Or I feel that. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, we, we talked about this in the pod about going your own way and like, the supply chain disruptions and things mm. like that. It's like, well, what do you do if there's, you know, the thing you want, you can't have anymore. Yeah. Or, you know, as a, to bring up an example that I think a lot of people in the pandemic, especially felt is like, what happens if the thing that you sunk so much of yourself into that you've enjoyed and loved for so long stops feeling nearly as good. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you fill the void? Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> the things that, that gave you the joy. Thing that you did to unwind, and now it's not working. If you've never tried anything else, if you've never like engaged with these things, and that's gone, what do you do? Yeah. Well, that's the danger of being a professional artist: is you take the thing that you loved doing for fun and it makes it your job, and it's it changes it. It's not. Oh fuck! You don't yeah. love it the same way anymore. You can't engage with it the same way you used to. Yeah, I yeah. When I think of um, what you were saying earlier about if you're not enjoying what you're drawing, then people aren't going to enjoy looking at it. Yeah, I feel that. You know, I try to get into, <laughs> harping on digital art again. Really try to get into digital art, and I see like these beautiful manga drawings, or was it? But showed you the these beautiful like portraits of women and stuff, and like yeah. really fantasy like or stuff like that, or like cyberpunk art, which I love Japanese cyberpunk art. And I wish I could draw it, but I don't enjoy recreating it. And then so I was like, uh, I guess I'll just go back to doing like pen and ink or, uh, you know, ink stone work. But yeah. You, do, like, you could do watercolors. You ever try watercolors? Yeah, I do watercolors too. Yeah. Just like analog stuff. And like, yeah, what do you do? You know, like when things don't bring you joy or, the, you know, all of a sudden you realize I've just been using X to cover up the whole my you know soul 
And now what do I do now that X is gone? Being a former drug addict, like, mm. you know, <laughs> it's just, I, I kind of see that, you know, drug addiction is really easy to look at because it's so like obvious, but a lot of people are doing the exact same thing with quote unquote healthier yeah. alternatives. Yeah, I was going to ask, I'd heard a lot of people just like replace one addiction for another. That's what you have to do almost in many cases. Like some people can't quit smoking, so they just like chew gum kind of thing and they just mm. that's all sometimes it's nicotine gums sometimes it's just gums the things i gotta do something instead and yeah. that'll hold it off for me yeah definitely I, like i i used to be a smoker uh smoking is like also a lot more common in, in south africa so like everyone i knew at least half of them smoked um so it was very hard to like avoid it but like yeah to, to break the habit i had to break the habit of going out for cigarette breaks with my co-workers because the alternative was that I was going to sit there for a while and watch them smoke. We'd have a conversation and my brain would just get stuck in that same groove. And I'd just be like, I want a cigarette right now so badly. I just mm, give it to me right now. That and drinking. Whenever I had a, a drink, it was like, oh, I want to have a cigarette because it's my brain wired the two together. It's like, mm. well, this is the pathway that you go. So this is the this is the like vices that you have for this situation. And it's like. I feel the same kind of patterns that I had with cigarettes with certain kinds of social media, especially mm. like these YouTube shorts, these TikTok videos, etc. It's that same kind of like they're trying to catch your brain in this groove to just keep you going. And like we already know the data is there that they keep you on there to keep you like they'll make you they'll show you things that piss you off or make you sad or make you like super excited specifically to uh, keep you hooked we're in spooky mode now it's getting dark but we got the candles out we can uh, channel those spirits and uh get into the spooky talk uh i know you know i've had you on on my various different shows over the years pj yes. we've talked about your time like in a, in a Buddhist monastery. Yes. How do you feel about the, the spirituality these days? You into magic, into spookiness? Oh, man, that's a really interesting question right now for me. Um, yeah, so I did live at a Buddhist temple for 10 years and spent oh, an hour to three hours or more doing meditation and prayer. And I guess, you know, sometimes a byproduct of that can be, I don't know, certain sort of clarity or insight or I don't know intuition but yeah it's kind of something I actually struggled with growing up too which is a large reason why I did a lot of drugs um to block all that out and when it came up for me recently um was I was at the Toshme internment camp site oh yeah last summer for an art residency working on a graphic novel project and it turned out I forgot that I can be sensitive to things. I've lived in haunted houses and all that type of stuff too mm -hmm. before where like doors open and close, like not the draft, but like the door handles turn and open and close type of thing. Wow. Yeah. And the water faucets turn, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, that, so these are, you, you lived in houses where spooky stuff like that happened? Yeah. When I lived in a Humboldt County in Eureka, fucked oh up haunted place um, as a whole. But as I was at this internment campsite, um, yeah, it just things felt really weird. And then the guy who ran the museum was talking to me about it. 
And yeah, so I would see or feel certain things and that's fine, you know, like, um, but he had found this old shrine that someone had just sent to him and he said he tried opening the box and he couldn't even open it. He felt like it was this bad mojo or whatever. And his wife was like, yeah, you're not allowed to open that box again, Ryan. I was like, okay. I was like, can I open it? (laughs) Because I'm just a sucker for this stuff. But then I opened it and like, I could, what it was, was this beautiful shrine. And what was wrong was that there's a bunch of really beautiful Buddhist text inside of the shrine and imagery. And they were all just in a cardboard box on the floor. And that's not a diss on the guy who received the box. Mm. But these things weren't treated well. And they need to be treated well. So then, you know, we did like burn incense, recited prayers for everything. And that apparently helped. But yeah, no, so spirituality, like... Buddhism very much still means a lot to me. A lot of the tenets of it, I think, are still really good. Um, we got various Buddhist tattoos. I got. I do have a lot of Buddhist tattoos. Um, mm-hmm. Amitabha. I think I have like four Jizos on me. Kuan Yin. Um, a couple mantras and prayers on my chest too as well. So that stuff has really helped me in the outside world. It's taken a long time to get used to the outside world. The thing I'm just now starting to click now that I got like a job as a um, with an like a three year art residency, so that's helping. That's awesome. Getting paid to just do what I do. Yeah. Uh, I feel most importantly like I find now that I'm not living in a temple and doing work that's directly related to like um, helping rebuild the culture of the Tibetans or something. Is that now I find it's really important. Now this new residency, for instance, I'm not trying to plug it, but it's like it gives me the opportunity to help work with people that are homeless or <clears throat> suffering from drug addiction and to um, help elevate those voices. And to me, spirituality is pretty much worthless unless you're using it to help others. And I feel like spirituality and being in service of helping others and whatever way you can, we all have our limits and you should take care of yourself first, obviously. Mm-hmm. But if you're not doing what you can to help others, then it's kind of a joke. Like mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus was great, in my opinion. Like I have no problem with Jesus. Everything that came after Jesus is just like a hot mess. Every organized oh, yeah. religion is a hot mess. But like Jesus hung out with all the prostitutes. Yeah. And the lepers, like he hung out with the discarded people and was like their champion. Yeah, is this, and then I don't know uh, what happened. Now we have like Joel Osteen or these freaking megachurch idiots, you know. It became yeah. the the worship of the self. It became you know gratifying your own ego. Yeah, I don't think most Christians would recognize Jesus if Jesus appeared today, because Jesus would probably be like good friends with like trans people and. Well, he'd be brown. You know, yeah, for the first rock be black Jesus. Come on, let's be. You know, yeah, like, well, like not yeah. to be like you know cliched about it, but it's true. He would be factually speaking, and then he'd be saying all these things that fundamentally seem to go against what they say they believe in. And I, that's not to say like I think there's like decent people that have some kind of sense of morality. They, I don't think anybody's like trying to be bad. I think everybody justifies what they're doing in some way, but like something's gone awry in that whole system where it's like become entwined with like money, capitalism and and like uh, just like gratifying your own desires and then finding a biblical justification for it after the fact. 
Yes, that is right. And it even goes on to like um, <clears throat> New Agers. Just gonna go after them too. Like sure, yeah. <clears throat> white cis New Agers. Like holy fuck! Like I was just went to some like workshop because my friend invited me to go. I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I'll check it out. What the hell did I enter into? That was like my attempt at Stephen E. impersonation. But it's like, it's just this like um, cultural tourism. Yeah. Where it's like, like oh, take a little bit of everything. Like, I'm just going to take a little bit of this over here. I'm going to mash up with this. And then I'm just going to say, you know, like we're all one in the fucking dance bumper sticker type hippie shit. And it's like, it takes away that like some of these teachings come from these cultures that have like spent fucking aeons like developing them and protecting them and they've just also been commodified now by white people to make more money off of them I, oh that reminds me of like <laughs> white sangomas in south africa which is a not uncommon thing i have met a good few and most of them i truly despised were they called sorry so uh, s- uh, white sangoma sangoma so i i might be butchering the pronunciation a little although i did grow up there and i'm fairly sure on that like um it is it is a, a religious figure in a lot of uh in in african traditional religions um or not even religions as much as culture like it's it's basically like a spirit guide that kind of thing and like unfortunately i wish i knew more about it outside of the context of having white people explain it to me because most of the people that i have encountered that have explained it have been white and i don't think they really understand it because it's that kind of like just cultural tourism where they're just like oh yeah i went and i went and lived in the bush for three days and now i'm a sangoma it's like mm, right no <laughs> Please no, just no, no, no. Well, there's a lot of, I think, a desire on people's part to claim some kind of special status for themselves. And that's not to talk about people that are like, you know, legitimately marginalized. But I think a lot of white people really want to seize upon that. Like, you know, like, I'm not going to tell anybody who, you know, is or is not disabled. But I've heard disabled people talk about a dislike of people that are very quick to claim being disabled in a big way when it's like, you know, you're not like, you know, disabled, disabled. And like, I'm not going to tell anyone again as a rather able-bodied person. But like, I think everything's so hard in life. We're all being pushed to the limit that like, if you have something going on for you, like you are, you know, you got something going on, you're disabled in a way. It's like, you might not seem like it or it might not seem as serious to others, but it's like, look, I need, like, I this makes sense to me. And this is how I'm going to be okay with the fact that I'm not living up to these very harsh pressures i'm under you know mm-hmm. and like uh people will be like oh i want to be you know a religious affiliation like people spiritually sidestep you know accusations of racism or whatever right they that's is that the term is it like spiritual sidestepping or something that where it's like you kind of use it to not talk about like you know uh, white supremacy or, or systemic racism you're like no we're all one in the dance or whatever right like it's like anything to avoid and like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to claim some special status for myself. No, I'm like, I'm a religious type, you know, this, uh, whatever. And that means I can what be better than you. I can be not held accountable in the same way. I can avoid something that I feel I'm not living up to. Like, yeah, the ones, so there were one or two white people who had gone on these, um, spiritual journeys that, 
absolutely refused to call themselves Sangomas because what they went on it for was that spiritual connection, not... And I, I think, like, you know, Western society is, in general, like, what are your main options? It's like, well, you can be Christian, I guess. Or if you want to make some effort, you can look into some alternatives. But the main one that is pushed by our society is Christianity. And I don't think most people find any spiritual connection there. I don't think they find it much meaning or much happy, like, much joy in it that is not associated with, like, white supremacy basically because at this point christianity is pretty like handily stuck with white supremacists and like you know all the priests that they keep moving around that keep diddling children well like, uh, it, it really is a way i mean for conservatives to claim a special status to get away with being bigots they can say no it's religious freedom you know like you are just taking a thing and using it as an excuse to avoid some duty or or responsibility you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, it's a hard thing to criticize. Oh, it's, you know, who's to say religious belief, what, what's real, what, you know, what people can and can't believe or whatever. And, you know, like, I don't know, like, there's obviously people that have dearly held religious beliefs, even Christians that have dearly held religious mm-hmm. beliefs, but it really seems like a lot of it is just an excuse for your preconceived bigotries that you've got your your prejudices that you've got and now you're going to come up with a justification for it like the slavers yeah i mean christianity feels like the and i'm saying this is extremely strong air quotes civilized religion in that it's the religion that you don't have to leave your house for you don't have to leave your neighborhood you just go down to your church or down the road and you get told about how god sees things and then you go home and you have your sunday roast and you forget about it or maybe you give some money too right you can pay a bit yeah. of money now you, like, you're good churches help people out in their communities sometimes and what have you but it's often in this way that like pushes out any other attempts to help and it's like, I, I known a number of people who've like lacked connection with nature, connection with others in their community, connection with people, and just feeling like, you know, so much of spirituality feels about like connecting with the universe as it is, not as, not as some like prettified, like painting on a wall of a white version of, uh, you know, Middle Eastern dude from 2000 years ago, just like actually going out and dealing with nature as it is dealing with reality like that is really powerful and like i i really i thought your comment earlier about like spirituality kind of not having a lot of worth if you're not using it to help people like interacting with it in a way that like engages you with other people and helps them it is you know now i think there is a space for like people perhaps they are developing their spirituality. They haven't, they're not fully sure what it is. Mm-hmm. And maybe they should be doing mm-hmm. that in a community of other people. It's hard. It's a very personal thing. I, I do a lot of stuff that's very private that like, yeah. I don't, it's hard to share. I like it when I get to share it with other people, yeah. but like it's, um, you know, like I think it's like people are afraid to bring it into the real world. Maybe they're afraid of not being taken seriously or, or what have you, but like, so, you know, maybe we can have a little room for that, but, but I definitely agree that like, okay, but, What's the point of it? Is it purely there to gratify you, to make you feel better? Have you given up on the world? Your spirituality tells you to, like, turn your back on people. Like, I don't know if that's very, like, useful. It just sounds like, like, I don't know. I feel like someone who turns inwards and and just wants to achieve nirvana 
I don't know. Can you even have Nirvana if you're doing it in like a selfish way where you're turning oh, your back man. on the world? Like, yeah, that's a good. That's a good topic. You know, there's like, what there's the um, there's like the pursuit of enlightenment for oneself, right? Which is kind of what you associate with like Theravadan school, and then you can get into like the Bodhisattva vow, which is like you put off your. It's like a weird paradox because you put off your own enlightenment for the sake of helping all others. But if you don't work to the cusp of enlightenment, then you can't help all others. Right. But the vow of the Bodhisattva would be like Jizo, which is the Japanese one from Japan or Kishiti Garba in Sanskrit or Sainingpo in Tibetan would be um, the vow that that specific one made was that they wouldn't cross over the threshold of enlightenment until all the hells are empty. And then when we're not just talking about like, you know, on other bodhisattvas, it's also, they're not talking about just people. They're talking about all sentient fucking beings. Like, let's think about that. How many ants are there? How many just all living things? Not just in this world system. If you want to get into like parallel universes or whatever, but all world systems. Oh yeah. Well, like Buddhism's got all these different layers. Yeah. There's the cosmology is insane. And so, yeah, there's like this vow and it's a really deep vow when you make it because it's like one teacher explained it as if you need to keep reincarnating in the middle of the shithole just to like see one addict and tell them it's going to be okay. That's what you're going to do for 10 lifetimes until it works out. Yeah. And it's like that that sort of scope of caring. And I just... Uh, I, I yeah. uh, first of all, I'm going to insert quickly for one listener I know for a fact is an avid listener of the show who's a, a Christian and as well, oh, I know that she's going to chime in and be like, yeah, but you're Christians, you know, there's like, yes, there's nice Christians and there's nice churches. We've been hard on Christianity, this one. It's this very much North American, mostly evangelical kind of Christianity that I think usually we use as a shorthand. We're talking about that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to you know, throw that in there for free. You know, don't <laughs> worry. Don't worry. I know. Yes. Hashtag not all Christians, but uh, <laughs> most and a lot of them and the most richest ones. Um, but anyways, but dad, to your point, uh, PJ, I, I've all, I've long thought that like, you know, like I feel like the real test to go to heaven would be like whether or not you actually want to go to heaven. Like, wouldn't you really like, shouldn't Jesus be in hell? Why isn't Jesus in hell helping the people suffering in hell? Wouldn't you like, like there's a Japanese, it's a story in the same collection of stories as the, the one that uh, Rashomon, the film, the mm-hmm. Kurosawa film was made out of that. That story is not called Rashomon. Yeah, it's, I think the collection of stories is called Rashomon, and then it's, that one's a different name, right? Mm-hmm. And there's one in it about a girl um, who is Christian in Japan, medieval Japan, when it, being Christian was criminalized. Yeah, and her parents are not Christian, and of course she believes they're going to hell. And then she's being captured by the authorities, and because Christianity's illegal, she has to like renounce her faith or be executed. And all the Christians are like holding together, and they're not going to renounce their faith. They're all going to die together. And she starts thinking about her parents and how they're Buddhist and how they're going to go to hell. And she can't bear that. She can't bear the idea that she'd nobly die here as a Christian and go to heaven while her parents have to burn in hell. So she renounces her faith and gets down off the cross and lives, and all the Christians are booing her. But no, she did it because. She's actually a good Christian because she cares. She cares about her parents. She'll go to hell with her parents. And yes, like, that, and that's and that's yeah. 
there's so many stories about that within like the Buddhist pantheon of just like literature that like, yeah, like you would re- literally rebirth in the hell realm to help someone. Yeah. And that's like true love, right? It's so like, yeah, the Dalai, there's this beautiful book where the Dalai Lama has a, um, meets with a group of, I think it's Trappist monks and they're talking, you know, because quite often they have a vow of silence. And they've invited him as part of a symposium to give commentary on famous passages from the Bible. And uh, the Dalai Lama is saying, you know, if I understand it after reading all these things, if you're truly to call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's simply your job to love. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So. Especially if you're going to like claim like God's the ultimate authority. It's like, well, let him do it. Let him judge it then. He's the one who judges. What are you doing? It's not your business on earth then. What are you doing this for? That's his territory. Let him figure it out. Yeah, you're yeah. getting the garbled mixed messages from 2,000 years ago through the, you know, even if you're if you're following the, the religious idea, you're getting these garbled ideas spread through multiple transla- mistranslations that we know of um, for 2,000 years ago as decided by a council of fucking, like, Romans at one point. Like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean... I just feel like, you know, all these these religious parents that are, like, disowning their LGBT kids because they, they're going to hell or whatever. It's like, Fuck. you should embrace your kid and go to hell with them, actually, if you're a good Christian. You should actually be willing to help others that you supposedly love rather than be like, well, see a loser. I'm going to go hang out with all the cool celebrities in heaven that I think it's going to be, like, some, like, 1950s, you know, white picket fence in the cloud scenario or whatever the American heaven is like really like my kind of hell personally, but yeah. Right. Not to mention you have to hang out with all these awful people there. Yeah. I just, yeah. I wonder, you know, if you look at what I'll say is like a flawed version of like biblical belief or following the Bible, it's like to criticize LGBTQ people or the homeless or anything is in if you believe that God is like omnipotent and all this creation is perfect, then why would you be shunning one of God's creations? Like, and um, yeah, like when I see people doing that, having myself been homeless or a drug addict and my sister also knowing lots of people, homeless drug addicts and having good friends that are trans gay all those things, you know, like, and seeing kids that are struggling with society because of that as well. That's like, how the fuck as a human who believes in a perfect, an all perfect creator shun creator's creations, you know, like, gee, you're God, the God that you choose to believe in. It just doesn't make sense. And it's, to me, it's really heartbreaking, which is why I went to Buddhism. <laughs> Yeah. Like, you know, and even then I kind of like, even within Buddhism, I see there's problems too, you know. Um, but like, you don't have to be religious to be a decent person. Like, my friend joked around about my British friend. He'd be like, there's a secret 11th commandment and I call it the commandment of George. Don't be a fucking cunt. Yeah. All the other commandments fall underneath that one. <laughs> it's true. Bible would be improved with that one. <laughs> Front end with that, right? It's like, don't be a dick. That's really all it takes. Yeah. It's you know. just like, 
I mean, I guess at the time, maybe they thought, like, love thy neighbor was, you know... Good enough. Good enough, but, like, uh... <laughs> Well, you know, here we are in, in the spooky ambiance, and as a, as a good witch, I love my tarot, I love my uh, card readings for the, the future, mm. and I want to acknowledge in this moment, since we're talking about matters of spirituality, that... Uh, the the goddess the the expert the, from apparently the the foremost expert on tarot and also a comic book uh, artist or writer the, the creator of Doom Patrol oh, um, wow. and um, uh, she's a writer uh, she's a writer who created Doom Patrol and she also founded the first trans rights organization in the UK uh, Rachel Pollock she's on her deathbed right now she's going to be crossing in the spirit realm soon. And I, you know, I'm not terribly familiar with her. I feel like I should be more familiar with her. But it's kind of incredible that this this trans woman was, you know, at the forefront of a lot of different things that are kind of intersectional with our interests here, um, you know. Uh, and uh, I don't know, respect. Yeah, I feel sure. like I've, absolutely. Uh, it sounds like she's going to be missed by quite a few people. And uh, you know, I'm kind of interested in this uh, idea of, of course, like. People who like exist marginally, having a connection to the divine, right? Like many cultures, gender variant trans people, or whatever that culture's interpretation of that natural phenomenon was, uh, they had a cultural realm. Two spirit in many indigenous cultures, Hijra and in India, too many to name all over the world in all different languages I can't pronounce. Yeah. Uh, everywhere had them basically, except for Europe. And, you know, other, a few other places where they, they were, you know, I'm not going to say it was a paradise. A lot of places I think they were persecuted more than oftentimes you want to admit. But really the persecution really started when those places would get colonized. But, the, the, you know, the old, this idea though of like trans people were like spiritual leaders in many cultures, spiritual figures. And yeah, I mean, I'm curious, uh, you know, like having, you know, you went to a Buddhist temple after your harrowing experience being homeless. I'm curious how much you have experienced people who've ex that had like really profound difficulties in life come to some spirituality through that or, you know. Oh, like... yeah, it's interesting. I find myself in the community that I was part of was actually pretty lonely for that reason because there wasn't that many other people that came from like the ex extreme background that I had, like an extreme by like growing up, like in California, you know, like this isn't like some war torn country, you know, but like, it's supposed to be like yuppies then, or there's no was a, that it was a lot of, like, yuppies or just like college kids trying to figure life out. But yeah. I feel like a lot of people who really do go onto, like you could say the path of whatever it is. It's not because you're happy, right? It's because you're suffering. Yeah. And um, there's this one quote, and it's the quote that kind of like made me like pull my head on my ass and start trying to do better when I was homeless and still smoking meth. Was that a a monk had escaped being captured or had escaped being tortured, in, you know, by the Chinese, communist Chinese party in Tibet? And the Dalai Lama asked him what he was afraid of, and the monk responds, "I was afraid of losing compassion for my captors." And that's, right? So, like, fuck. <laughs> like, so here I am suffering my meth addiction, being homeless. Poor me, poor me. Not to, like, you know, downplay, like, my own trauma and suffering, right? But, dude, 
Like, what? And so that's why I got on the path. It was because of that statement. Wow. Because I figured if this is what this guy, there's something here. And it was about praying to God for forgiveness. It's like, yeah, this guy was able to do that. And so I feel with like, um, I have met other people like, you know, and what scares me the most about spirituality and new age and any of these things it happens all the time within Buddhism as well is you have to be very weary or wary. I always screw these up um, of people that actually want to become teachers mm. of these sorts of things, because being a teacher is really serious. I don't, I don't think a lot of people get that. Like, and it's usually not good. You know, like, so you were speaking earlier about how these people going out into the bush. So like, oh, no, I'm this and that. I'm like this practitioner. I'm so cool. And then there's the ones that actually go out. They're like, no, 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 no. I just went on a retreat, man. Like, yeah. Those are probably the people you actually want to talk to about it. Yeah. They have the humility. The people that's like, no, I just did this for like, no, I just went on a retreat. You know, and um, yeah, I just, I feel there's Chogun Trungpa talked about spiritual materialism where at some point you're just running around collecting merit badges from different teachers. Well, it's like, it's not like you know? that, uh, there's a Zen cone perhaps, uh, where it's like the monk is like, I really want to achieve enlightenment. What, what do you need to do? And he's like, Oh, it's going to be like 10 years. Or like, what, what if I meditate really, really hard? Like, Oh, that's going to be 20 years. Like right. the more you want it, like it becomes you're after it. Like you're, you're chasing it. You're still attached to something. Isn't that there's the five sicknesses or six sicknesses, mm. and one of them is the desire to be free from the others? Like, the yeah. you're just, you've missed the point, man. You're just going around collecting points because you think that means something. Yeah, exactly. And you see that a lot. And so that's when we get back to, like, replacing something with something else. Mm. You know, um, I've only recently started reconnecting to, like, that lifestyle since I've been out there for God, almost 10 years now, I think. And because, yeah, there's like this, this scene around it. It's just really weird and gross. And, you know, my good friends here will know about like my time at the temple, but you know, like in my graphic novel or whatever, like I really downplay it. Like, I think I reference it once or twice. Yeah. And I don't go around talking about this type of stuff unless people like ask me and I feel like, Oh, it's Okay. You know, and uh, because, yeah, people just want to collect things and take them out of context. You know, I was actually at a Cree language retreat over the weekend and it was beautiful. I think I was the only person there that wasn't indigenous. I was there with my wife and the Cree community here has always been very welcoming to me. And um, people were going around saying, like singing their songs or whatever. And I shared, I think the first time in 10 years, I shared one of the mantras I learned out loud and I sang it for them. Because I knew it was a safe place to do so. Because there is a respect there that you don't normally see in white cultures. So it's like cis white, just, mm. oh, what's that mantra? What can I use it for? Blah, 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 blah. blah. Next thing you know, it's just like, the fuck, no. So it was really, it was like really refreshing to be able to do that this weekend. That's so cool. You know, and and a couple of cookums came up and talked to me about it afterwards. And it felt really nice and safe. And it's probably like the most... Uh, safe I've felt like in a community like with that aspect of myself since I left since I left temple life and 
fall of 2014, I think, is when I left it. So it's come up on... I always forget it was like so recent when I first met you that you just left the temple. Yeah, first two years or something, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Sabrina's one of the first people I met here in Canada that was like outside of my wife's friend group. And um, yeah, truly, actually, Sabrina's like one of the few people I count as my friends here in Canada. It's hard to make friends in Vancouver as an adult in the modern world. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah. I'll second that. Right. But, you know, I feel like this is kind of coming around to where we're sort of starting early on with, like, doing something of quality, doing something of substance. And in this world, it's increasingly difficult. Like, there's fewer uh, incentives. Like, people, it's just easy to do the easy thing. Do the self-gratifying thing. Just make money. Just, yeah. you know, be greedy or selfish. And it's hard to actually want to make a change, be a teacher, actually help somebody, actually make a piece of art that means something, actually make a product that has quality behind it. Like, it is hard to do these things, but I feel like there's like an imperative to do it. Do the hard thing. Stand up straight, you know, uh, clean your room, bucko. Like, you know, like, (laughs) there's a degree of like, there's some of like, you know, these shysters, they'll say like good, a bit of good advice in the way, like, I think it's time people gave a shit a little bit more. I think it would go a long way. It's hard. Life is hard. We're all pushed to the limit. But like, don't you like want to actually do something that matters? Don't you want like your life to have meaning? Don't you want the things you make to to matter and not just be mindless content you put out for the sake of feeding the algorithm or whatever? I, I, there is, and I'm, I do not remember the quote super well, but I'm going to try and relay it as best I can. Just, the idea, life is a journey and the destination is your grave. But the journey is what is what makes it special. Keep your eyes open and see things for what they are. Just like, you know, take that walk up a mountain, not because you want to get to the top, but because you want to see everything along the way. Do that painting because it makes you feel good about doing it, not because you want that really great piece of art. Don't do things because you want to claim, because you want people to, to like, attach onto it. Yes, that is a strong motivator for people, but, like, do stuff because it matters to you, because it has meaning to you in the act of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. Thank you, PJ. This was uh, it's always a great time talking to you. It is. We'll have you back anytime you want. Yeah, always. Anytime. You got anything you want to plug? Anything coming up? Um, I, don't know. I know you got secret I projects all the time. I wish I could plug something. That's cool. You don't. Small. Actually, later this year, I my website is poorly updated, but it's uh, pjpattonart.com, and I will be having an art show this summer, which will be featuring... A lot of collaboration from the homeless community as an effort to really to raise uh, support for supportive housing and just to throw out there all the people that are contributing to this project are going to be getting paid well by us the grant that we got was really cool for it so anybody that contributes to this from off the street will be paid handsomely for their contributions to the work that's so wonderful. it's gonna be a pretty cool collaborative project so yeah I guess that's, that's my plug outstanding Well, I'll I'll say Obsessive by Nature podcast is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you so much to everybody who supports us. You can join the Discord. 
Yeah. yeah. Thank you Join for having Discord. me. It's been a pleasure having you on. And yeah, thank you to everybody listening. It This is um, made possible by you engaging with it. I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.